For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet the young artists behind a show called Mapping Q. In honor of Tucson's 240th birthday, hear what life was like in the original Presidio in the year 1776. And Will Clipman shares memories of his friend, blues musician Stephen George. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Mapping Q is an art education program for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth. It's also the title of a show at the University of Arizona Museum of Art that features their creations, including paintings, drawings, digital art, and interactive video. Chelsea Farrar is the museum's assistant curator of education. Mapping Q is a program for youth, by youth, um, so it's in partnership with the Southern Arizona AIDS Foundation, um, and the youth investigate their representation um, in the museum and then create artwork in reaction to what they discover. And I feel after seeing some of the works here that they've provided many different types of images that depict their identity in a way that shows it to be just as malleable and varied as straight art. Correct. So they're, they're reacting to that heteronormative practice that happens in institutions primarily, not primarily, but often happens in museums that are representing art made by white men for white men essentially it's just the history of art and that's not necessarily you know a criticism of it it's just the truth um, and so their work really looks at okay what is it that's on the walls why is it why am i not represented here who is who am i and how can i create my identity um, and then we intentionally create an exhibition so that like you said it, it puts their identities up on the walls and makes them just as valuable as the other identities that we predominantly see in museums and really in visual culture. I'm Jude. My main medium is uh, words. I love uh, spoken word poetry. I write and I perform and I love listening to other people perform. Um, so I'm not very much of a visual artist, so it's kind of out of my comfort zone to be in an uh, exhibit like this. So the things that I did was, uh, like, the video that I created uh, is uh, all an amalgam of other people's stories and other people's words uh, on a video and just of a map of Tucson. And it's just experiences that queer people have had in Tucson with around their identities. The description of this piece is a poem um, written by the people that I interviewed, I asked the people that I interviewed a question, um, which was, uh, when will you no longer have to fight for representation? And I took their answers and I put them together into one long poem. What do you think someone, say, who's lived in Tucson their whole lives and comes to this exhibit and sees your piece and spends a moment interacting with it, what's something that you hope they'll come away from it with? I hope they'll come away from it with this uh, idea of connection with others because I feel like uh, we're often isolated in our own communities and our own uh, sides of town uh, and we don't ever think that there are people like us around um, and so I hope that people will actually think that their opinion actually matters and that um, other people around them care about them and are, can relate to them in a way that they don't feel like anyone can. 
My name is Ollie, and I'm originally, well, I was born in Tucson, but I'm from Bisbee, Arizona. I think I was very lucky to grow up there because it has a very open, friendly community there. Well, my piece focuses on um, a central figure rendered in graphite with a little bit of minor shading. The figure sits on a swing in front of um, some rays of light from some clouds behind, and and the figure represents both male and female aspects. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, he's a character that's very near and dear to my heart. It's important for me to represent that male and female don't have to clash. You can have whatever kind of identity you want in whatever kind of body you might want to have it in. Because um, there's this kind of elitism sometimes in queer communities where some people say like, oh, you have to go through hormone therapy, you have to go through surgeries, and really uh, it's it's a mixed bag you have to pick and choose what's right for you and it was important to be able to represent and have something that showed that you could be that mix that blend if you wanted to be my name is Lene I've been with Eon which is the um, LGBTQ uh, youth center uh, for about three years and um, I've been a part of Ally, which is the um, one of the curriculum parts of Mapping Q, and that's Arizona Life Links for Youth, and that's a suicide prevention program. And last semester, when Mapping Q became kind of this idea that came up, um, Sarah, she told me about it, and I was super excited, also really nervous, because like I said, I don't art very much. Um, I'm more of a poet, and so um, that's why a lot of my pieces have words in them, because I relate through words and things like that within the queer community like we're all over the place when it comes to arts and like expression and things like that and when I heard that we would be able to be in a museum where you kind of have this feeling of um, like this prestige it's just kind of really beautiful to see how Mapping Q has grown um, like just by word of mouth with uh, not just participants but people that are coming to see our art and, um, and they can see like oh this is a piece about mental illness and about being queer and this is like I deal with depression or um, I deal with you know uh, the border issues of living in Tucson and this is my history too and I like learned that through this and it's really beautiful to see it in a different way because um, I also identify as an activist and I see that in other ways with protests and things like that but I've never really seen it uh, through art until I got into this program. My name is Sean Crozier. I started doing the Mapping Queue, I'd say about maybe like five, six weeks ago. And it's been different for me for most of these people because I was not an artist. I've always had an interest in it. However, when you don't have a lot of skills and you didn't develop these as a child, it's very discouraging to try and develop skills in art at an older age. Well, what did you put together for this exhibit? Show me. I put together this piece right here, which is digital media. So I basically did this on my computer with um, a tablet. So it was exactly like normal drawing, just digital, which is incredibly more forgiving <laughs> because you can actually erase things and there are no smudge marks. Mm. How would you describe this piece of art to someone who can't see it? Well, the composition is three people in a bed together. Um, I specifically chose a bunch of patterns in the background, um, but the main thing is the colors. The pillows are a dark blue, the sheets are red, and the blanket covering it all is black. Um, this is to represent the polyamorous flag, and that is how I identify I am polyamorous. It is my particular branch of queer. 
What do you think about your experience making some digital art for this? Uh, is that opening doors for you creatively? It is, actually. Since I've started doing this, I'm actually going to be starting doing more art myself, just creatively and expressing myself. I think that'll be a good thing. And overall, this program has been doing really well for that. It's helping people who are otherwise not necessarily that comfortable with showing to be allowed to in a very safe way. Again, here's Chelsea Farrar. My goal as educator is really to make the museum more accessible, you know, for these youth, their peers, their family, um, for other youth that identify with them, um, so they feel like this, is, this space is also for them as well. Um, and then also the, our typical museum viewers will see that there are a lot of amazing art out there made by individuals that don't have famous names, that youth that... Um, we often get, you know, neglected and are oftentimes, unfortunately, at risk for, um, you know, verbal and physical abuse in schools, um, have some amazing things to say. Mapping Q is on display at the University of Arizona Museum of Art through September 13th. Someone should be baking a very large cake. Tucson is having its 240th birthday this weekend. To get a picture of what life was like when the Presidio was established, Gisela Tellis talked to some Arizona historians. It was summer of 1776 when representatives from the 13 American colonies declared their independence from Great Britain. The story of the United States was just beginning. And more than 2,000 miles away, Tucson's story was beginning, too, in an unexpected place. Shaw Kinsley, director of the Tubac Presidio State Historic Park, and archaeologist Homer Teal tell the tale. Tucson's story starts in Tubac because the Spanish came up from the south, so there was a whole series of frontiers, if you will. There was one just above Mexico City for a while, and then it made it all the way up to Durango, and then it made its way up to uh, uh, El Paso, which is kind of our region here. So following uh, east-west uh, from El Paso, this was the frontier. And the purpose of the frontier and having these presidios all along here was that it was providing protection for the main silver mining areas of Mexico, which was the cash cow for Spain. In 1775, an Irishman named Hugo O'Connor uh, was tasked with inspecting all the presidios from Louisiana to California. So he came to Tubac, which had a presidio fortress, didn't like what he saw, and then he came north to Tucson which was a Native American village, and decided this would be a great place to build a new fort. The word had come down that this presidio was to be closed and uh, that the soldiers were to move with their families to Tucson. It must have been wrenching because they had made a home here, uh, children had been born here and things like that. People then have to be a bit like we are, where you, you don't like change. When the soldiers and their families arrived in Tucson, they found a brand new fort, unfinished and ill-equipped. 
It must have been short of uh, housing and short of food and short of supplies for a long time. So uh, it took um, some time to get up to speed and uh, so it probably was no picnic. Historian Ken Scoville puts it more bluntly. It would be grim at best. And I'm sure people were thinking at the time, how did I ever get out here? Because this is really the end of the world. The first thing, any strategy for them to survive out here since they'd moved up from Tubac was to get some kind of roof over your head. So they would probably set up some type of ramada to get the heat off whatever encampments they had. And they would probably use the mesquite trees, the beams from that, and then other cross members or anything to build a ramada. And then typically, maybe even have some kind of fireplace and chimney for the winter for heat. So you had to get yourself protected from the elements. For guidance, these new residents occasionally turned to more experienced Tucsonans. Over at the base of Sentinel Peak, or which now is called A Mountain, uh, was the mission of San Augustine, and there were several hundred Odom and Pima people living there. And they were a farming community, and then during the hot months, they might go off somewhere else to go hunting or gathering wild foods, the materials they needed to make baskets, that sort of thing. Eventually, the newcomers settled into a routine. The soldiers had a variety of tasks. They would go out on expeditions looking to see what was going. They would work on building the fort. They would be guarding the horse and cattle herds from the Apache who liked to visit and borrow a few of those animals every now and then. The women who were here would be washing the clothes down in the canal at the base of the terrace and helping to raise the kids, cooking, grinding corn and wheat on the manos and matates. It was a hard life, but uh, for whatever reason, people stayed here. With life centered on survival, politics weren't a priority. In 1776, there probably wasn't a lot of news trickling in about what was happening in, in the American colonies. Spain was a traditional enemy of, of England, so if they heard anything, they would say, oh, well, that's great because we don't like them. It wasn't until the 1780s that better information about the American Revolution occurred, and they actually raised money here in Tucson to give to the American people to help fight the British. More than two centuries later, the U.S. is a dramatically different place, and so is southern Arizona. If you look at where the Santa Cruz is today and all the development, people can forget there was a reason why people settled here and have lived along the Santa Cruz for 4,000 years. Surface flow of water, landscape. In fact, in Father Kino's diary, he talks about in the 1690s that when the birds would fly off the trees in the Santa Cruz riparian area, the sky would darken. This was a lush oasis in the desert, and that's why every group was stopped here and why there were so many contests and conflicts here, because it was a desirable place. I'm Gisela Tellis for Arizona Spotlight. Joining me now is Roger Pfeiffer, co-chair of the nonprofit organization, the Friends of Tucson's Birthplace. Thanks for joining me, Roger. Thank you, Mark. Tell us what you got planned for this weekend. This uh, weekend and this week has always been a special one for us because of our, uh, our name, Friends of Tucson's Birthplace. So we celebrate the birthday of Tucson. We have held it in past years at the Mercado. Uh, this year, our board suggested we change it to a historical building. So we're holding it at the Sosa Carrillo Fremont House, which is located at 151 South Granada. It's a newly reopened historical house, and it has a great exhibit put on by um, a local artist, Gail Castaneda. And she is actually very important to us because 20 more years ago, she was instrumental in preserving 
the properties that are now known as Tucson Origins Heritage Park, and the Mission Garden is part of that. We will be holding a breakfast this Sunday. Uh, we have two seating sessions, one from 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., and the other from 9 o'clock to 10.30 a.m. We did that because it's a, it's a relatively small area, uh, smaller than the Mercado, and we would like everybody that wants to to be able to, to participate. There will be huevos con uh, napolitos or chorizo, so we have a vegetarian or a meat dish. Uh, we have papas in chili, so uh, uh, chilies and potatoes. Uh, frijoles, calabacitas. We have Sonoran white wheat uh, tortillas, which we grow the white wheat in our, in our garden too, a uh, heritage crop. Some fruit cups, and uh, both vegetarian and vegan options are available. So it's a, it's a family affair. To make reservations for this breakfast, um, either, either session, uh, please go to the Tucson Birthplace website. What's something else about this weekend's birthday celebration that you think is really distinctly Tucson? Well, Tucson is a food city, um, and part of that is the heritage that we have of, of raising food in the desert. Part of the name Mission Garden uh, may cause people to think that we are only recreating what was there during the mission time. We're actually, this four-acre piece of land that is enclosed by the walls called Mission Garden is actually, through archaeology, has been found to have continuous cultivation for 4,100 years. It's the only piece of property that has that kind of archaeological stamp of approval in the United States. So we are celebrating the cultures that have contributed to the, the uh, agriculture in Tucson for 4,100 years. Um, I think Tucson has that kind of rich history and, and the intent to preserve, uh, recreate, and celebrate that, that rich diversity of history. Uh, which makes Tucson a unique place. And we, we, we feel very, very proud to be part of that. Roger Pfeiffer, thank you for your time. Mark, thank you very much for having me. and rock musician Stephen George died Monday. He was 62 years old and had been in poor health since the death of his wife Lavinia White last year. A member of the Tucson Musician Hall of Fame, George had been writing, performing, and recording for more than four decades. One of his frequent collaborators was drummer and percussionist Will Clipman, who joins me now to talk about his friend. I put a 20 in the belly of my beat up bowls as more pieces on a body than a map as folds on the head. With the sun still tickling the mountain's breast, I grew out of California with a three hours rest in the air. The reason the road's on, hey, hey, daddy, honey, where are you been gone? I started playing with Stefan in the legendary world beat dance band Brain Damage Orchestra in 1988 and we played all over Tucson and the Southwest. Following that, I played in an interim band called Yuma Beach, uh, which was kind of a harder-edged rock sound. Then we played in Song Tower 
which featured Lavinia White and my wife at that time, Jan Daly, in a quartet. And the final iteration was the blues power trio, the Conrads, with Jay Trapp on bass and Stefan on guitar, of course, and myself on drums. Working with him that long, you had an up-close opportunity to see how he changed and grew as an artist over the years. Was Stefan George born a blues man, or did he become one? Both. I think he always had the blues in his soul. I think musically he grew into the Hall of Fame blues guitarist that most people remember him as being. In the early days, he was playing a lot of world beat and reggae and ska, and uh, and then moved into a folky kind of realm. He could always play rock and roll with the best of them. But to me, the blues evolution was interesting to watch, having played with him through many musical iterations. And that was probably the closest thing to his musical spirit, if you will. So that was both being born that way and growing into it over time. Thousand miles since I seen my pet. I ain't smiling over me. Sleeping on God's rocky carpet. Drinking water from a bitter creek. But I'm on my way back. Tell us about what it was like to work closely with Stefan and Lavinia. You knew them both and how they creatively blended. It was man and wife as well as two singers. Uh, They had a very, very deep bond as a couple and that was always reflected in the music that we did together. And of course I loved Lavinia to pieces and knew her well. It was interesting to see them interact on stage and in the recording studio and then to go sit in their little baby pool with them on a summer's evening out behind the house and and just have grins together as friends. Um, But their blend was very organic and natural and uh, I think very deeply emotional. Stefan's voice seems to have changed a lot over the years. It got deeper, it got rougher. He really, really got in touch with that soul. Can you tell us something about how his relationship to his main instruments, his guitar and his voice, changed over time? Well, his guitar playing continued to evolve and become better and better and better. He never stopped perfecting his technique and looking for new ways to play the instrument. But his voice is really a force of nature, and you're right, it did mature into what one writer has called honey on asphalt which I love. It had a beautiful smoothness, near perfect pitch, very clean articulation of lyrics, and yet underneath that was this really rough texture. Uh, And that honey on asphalt phenomenon matured in his voice throughout his life. I I saw him not too long ago at uh, Old Town Artisans, and it was all there, the playing, the voice, You know, it it continued to evolve right up until the end of his life. You mentioned that you were friends offstage as well, but what really kept you coming back for more over the years working with Stefan? Well, I'll tell you a story that indicates the kind of man he was. Uh, We were scheduled to go on a three-week tour of Germany on September 18th. 17 dates in 21 nights all over Germany. 
and the Tuesday prior to that was 9-11. The world changed, and the three of us, Jay and Stefan and I, got together in my kitchen and thought, well, should we go? Is it appropriate to go and play blues in Germany right now? And he looked at us and said, guys, we got to go. We got to be who we are and do what we do, and maybe it will do some good. And we went, and we had an incredible tour, and it was that shining window of opportunity when the rest of the world kind of was with us for five minutes. And, uh, and Stefan saw that and seized it and just um, was not afraid. He was fearless, and he was honest and uh, generous and uh, a good friend. Choose a song and tell us the story behind it, Will. They're all great. Uh, Stefan was a marvelous songwriter as well as a singer and a guitarist, but I'm going to pick Queen of Sixth Avenue just because it has a really Tucson flavor, and I like the funk of it. it it's not straight-ahead blues or rock and roll. It kind of has a almost a New Orleans second-line backbeat that's very cool and gives him a chance to shine as a vocalist. about a way you think that Stephen George's musical legacy is going to live on? Well, number one, all the people who ever heard him play are going to remember that because he was memorable. Alongside that, all the people who knew him and loved him personally, I personally feel that the loss of a loved one is outlived by loving memories. And if I'm right about that, Stephen's going to be lovingly remembered for as long as any of us are alive. And thirdly, just the kind of person he was in the community. I never met anybody who didn't like him and didn't want to be friends with him. And he could be rough around the edges. He was a bit of a curmudgeon, but as I said, he was honest to a fault, generous, loving, outspoken, intelligent, funny, and just the kind of guy that you'd want to go have a beer with and then sit down and listen to with your big ears on. Stephen George was scheduled to play a show this weekend at Delectables on 4th Avenue. In honor of his memory, fans and friends will gather at Delectables for a jam session Saturday from 9 p.m. to midnight. Hotel Congress is also planning a tribute to Stephen George that will occur on September 11th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.